0: It's good to be with you all this morning. If you have a, a copy of Scripture, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis 15. You heard the text read. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, I had the, the privilege this week of hanging out with your pastor a little bit. So Nathan was at High Point for the Charles Simeon Trust, where we get to fill out worksheets and practice uh, teaching and preaching God's Word. And so it was fun to to get to to chat and hang out with your pastor a little bit. And so grateful to you for letting him come to that and to be a part of that. Uh, I think it was an encouragement to him and to all the other brothers from from Texas and from other places to come and and to think about preaching God's Word. And so it's a joy to be with you. Uh, Pastor Juan at High Point, the other elders all greet you from High Point Baptist Church, and so grateful to to be here with you all this morning. Um, I want to open by thinking about the, the dissonance that we sometimes feel in life between what we've been told and our lived experience. And so we can think about some trivial examples of that. Maybe a restaurant that your friends have hyped up, and you go and you say, this isn't all that it's cracked up to be. I confess, that's how I used to feel about Chewy's Tex-Mex. And then I realized, don't get the enchiladas, get the other stuff, and now I realize, okay, it's, this is great Tex-Mex. But um, other things like milestones, turning 50 years old, graduating from high school, things like that, where you're told this is a huge milestone, and then you get there and you say, my experience doesn't really bear this out. It feels just like another day, right? Um, maybe being told that the Walt Disney World is the most magical place on earth, um, which perhaps is not a good example, because I think it might actually be the most magical place on Earth. My family and I went there in, in 2020, so... Um, but we can also think of more weighty examples of this dissonance that we might experience, right? Having a, a friend or a relative tell us that they are going to change some destructive behavior in their life, and yet we, we see the, the same old patterns continue to crop up. Maybe receiving some sort of diagnosis from a doctor, and yet, In our lives, we feel the same, like nothing's changed. And yet, we've received this report that sits in tension with our lived experience. In the Christian life, I think we can think about the dissonance that we often experience between God's promise that He's going to sanctify us, He's going to grow us. And then we we look in the mirror and we think about our progress in the Christian life and we think, I don't feel that. I'm seeing any progress in my Christian life. I'm not growing in holiness the way I expected. And so as we look at Genesis 15 this morning, we're going to work through this passage of Scripture, and I think we'll see that we're not alone when we experience that type of dissonance in our lives. I think it's somewhat encouraging to know that even our our forefather Abraham actually experienced this in his own way. And so my aim is to encourage us with the truth that despite appearances to the contrary, God is utterly committed to fulfilling his covenant promises to his people. We see that in Abraham's life. His his appearance, you know, his, what he's experiencing is he's childless. He, he's not in the land of promise. We think about the people that Genesis was first written to, the Israelites, who were on the cusp of the promised land. And they've been delivered from Egypt, and yet they're looking at the nations living in the land, and they're thinking... Okay, I know God has promised us the land, but how are we going to dispossess these people and and take hold of our inheritance? And we can think about even ourselves today under the new covenant how, despite some appearances to the contrary in our own lives, God is faithful and he's utterly committed to fulfilling all of his covenant promises to his people. So we're going to work through Genesis 15 kind of in two parts. Verses 1 through 6, I'm going to call a starry sky. 1 through 6 is a starry sky, and then seven through 21 is a smoky symbol. So trying to draw out some of the language from the text, a starry sky and a smoky symbol, those are going to be the the main uh, sections of our sermon. And so just a note about those two sections, verses one through six really highlight offspring, descendants. And then verses seven through 21 really highlight the aspect of land, that God is going to give this land to the people of Israel. So offspring and land, keep those just in the back of your mind as we work through the text. So look with me first at a starry sky, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Verse 2, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness." So look with me first at verses, just verse 1, where God gives this assurance to Abram, right? Verse 1 starts, after these things. And so I trust you're familiar with the book of Genesis, but we always need to, to think about what is the context of the after these things. I'm sure you're familiar with our, fo- our father Abraham, right? This patriarch of the promises uh, of God's people. But to set the context a little bit, in Genesis 12, God called Abram out of his homeland from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he called him to go to a place that God would show him. And he called him to to leave behind his family, his kindred, uh, everything that he knew. And he made some amazing promises to Abram, right? He promised in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, to bless Abraham, to make his name great, to, to make him into a great nation. And then in verse 3, to bless all the families of the earth in Abraham and in his offspring, and so, Abram, what does he do? He sets out, age 75, travels to Canaan, the land of promise. He, he sojourns there with his wife. He takes along his nephew, Lot, the son of his brother, Haran. And in chapter 12, Abram goes down into Egypt because of a famine, right? But then God brings him out, kind of foreshadowing the exodus, right? So, we see Abram coming out of Egypt with great possessions like Israel is going to do so many hundreds of years later. And then after that, Abram's sojourning in the land, but his, his nephew Lot goes east, and he settles in Sodom, right? And so we, we see even in chapter 13, okay, this is not a good sign. Lot is, is going down to Sodom. Things are, are not going to go well for him there, right? And so in chapter 14, the, the chapter before our chapter, there's this alliance of Mesopotamian kings, and they, they come against this dip, different group of kings that includes this king of Sodom. And, Sodom and the neighboring kingdoms are kind of defeated in battle, and Lot is kind of caught up in this skirmish, and he's taken off as a a prisoner of war, as it were. And so in chapter 14, Abram acts as this royal deliverer. He, He gathers 318 men, and he defeats these conquering kings and rescues Lot. And then upon returning victorious from this rescue mission, Abram is blessed by this interesting figure, Melchizedek, who's king of Salem and priest of God most high. And so Genesis 15 picks up right where that story leaves off. And so it opens with these words from the Lord, fear not Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And so why would God open with an exhortation to Abram to not fear? Well, if we're thinking about chapter 14, Abram's likely afraid about these kings that he's just defeated and rescued Lot. And he's thinking I hope they don't come back and try and fight me again because I'm just a sojourner in this land of promise. And so now he's, he's kind of gotten some bad blood between him and these neighboring kings. And so God tells him, do not fear, a command that's repeated throughout scripture. And God promises to be Abram's shield, to deliver him from his enemies, to shield him from all the things that might come against him. And I think the, the best way to, to translate the end of chapter one, or verse one, is that God's going to be his shield and his very great reward. So the ESV, the way it's, it's written, it sounds like, uh, I am your shield and your reward will be very great, as if the reward is something other than the Lord. But I think it's better to translate it, I am your shield and your very great reward. And so God is saying, I'm going to be your shield and I'm going to be your treasure. I'm going to be the one who you ultimately are going to, to seek after. And so we think about Genesis 22, when, when Abram is called to sacrifice Isaac. There, that loyalty is put to the test. And Abram's asked, do you, do you treasure me above everything else, or do you, do you treasure me because I'm offering you offspring and blessing? So, but notice, secondly, uh, Abram's faltering faith in verses 2 and 3. Abram responds to the Lord's assurance with a question, what will you give me, verse 2, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So we don't know how much time has passed from Genesis 12, verse 4, where Abram, it says, is 75 years old, but it seems that years have probably passed by this point. And so however old Abram is, he's feeling doubt to begin to creep in, right? He says he continues, or he's, he's walking through life childless, we know from Genesis chapter 11, verse 30 that Sarai, his wife, was barren. And so we know that for her to conceive, for them to have a child, God is going to have to intervene and bring that about. And so Abram is concerned that this member of his household, Eleazar of Damascus, is going to receive his inheritance. And it's a little bit obscure exactly what's going on here, but I think what's probably happening is that in the ancient world, if, if a man didn't have offspring, didn't have children, he could select someone in his household to receive his inheritance. And so, Abram is basically saying, I'm childless. You haven't given me an offspring, and so I'm going to have to choose Eliezer of Damascus. In verse 3, Abram, he says essentially the same thing, but this time it's even a little bit more pointed, right? He says, behold, you have given me no offspring. And so, he's, he's saying, you've given me no offspring. A member of my house will be my heir. We think about Abram's faltering faith, we see it later on in in chapter 17. Abram will laugh in disbelief at the thought that he as a hundred-year-old man and his wife at 90 would have a child, right? In chapter 18, verse 12, Sarah overhears this promise from the Lord and she laughs in disbelief, right? So Abram, he's not pictured as totally righteous in every way in the book of Genesis, right? We see some of the, the faults and the failings of Abram. But Abram is is looking for the Lord to give him something, some assurance that he will be true to his word. I don't know about you, but for me, that's encouraging. When I read a text like this and I see Abraham had seasons of doubt, he wasn't totally turning away or or casting God off, but he's saying, God, what will you give me? I, I have trouble seeing how my experience can fit with what you've promised. I'm walking through life childless, and yet I know your word and what you've told me. I know that's encouraging to me. But in verses 4 through 5, we hear God's reaffirmation of his word of promise. And we see also an accompanying sign that God gives. So God responds to Abram. He says in verse 4, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. A very literal translation would be, This one will not inherit you. Rather, the one who comes out from your loins, he will inherit you. So he's saying, you don't have to select some person in your household your your very own son is going to inherit you so god is is responding to abram's doubts with this reaffirmation of his promise right but then in verse 5 god gives a sign he he gives what abraham asked for and so he gives him a sign to confirm and strengthen this word of promise he takes him outside he tells him to to look up and try and number the stars and he says if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be, right? There's a, an innumerable amount of stars. It's, it's hard in Austin, Texas, and with light pollution now, it's hard to even find places in the world where you can still see all the stars at night, but we can imagine what Abram's talking about here, right? That if you can number these stars, that's how many your offspring are going to be, and so, so God attaches to his word of promise this sign from the natural world, So he became an aid and a support to his faith. One thing I think it's important to clarify here, Abram is not merely interested in perpetuating his family line. In the ancient world, most people were were very concerned about perpetuating their family line. And, And Abraham surely, like everyone else, was concerned about that. But he understood God's promises to him. Genesis 12 were unique and had implications for the whole world. So he was looking beyond just I want a son, he was seeing that the promises God made to me, they, they point back to Genesis, to the promise that in Genesis 3.15, God was going to, to crush the head of the serpent by an offspring of the woman. And we learn in Genesis 12, that offspring of the woman is going to come from an offspring of Abram. And so, Abram is, is hearing this promise and realizing Wow, this is, this is big. This is not just me and my little family. This has massive ramifications. God is promising that my offspring is going to be the vehicle for God's redemptive program of bringing blessing to the nations. When we think about the unfolding story of Genesis, we see that Abram and his children would have known that his line would produce the offspring of Genesis 3.15. Later on, In the Bible, in 2 Samuel 7, David is promised an eternal kingdom and descendants on his throne. And again, just like Abram, David is not just concerned with more kings on his throne, the way that all kings would like to have a child so that their kingdom persists. But David understands this is more grand than just my little nation in this little strip of land in Palestine. God is making massive promises to me. And David says in, in verse 19 of 2 Samuel 7, this is instruction. This is Torah. This is, this is teaching for all of humanity. That's what it says in verse 19. And so, Abram and David both knew that God's promises had, had cosmic significances. They, they had more than just uh, Abram's offspring or David's offspring. They had, they had significance for God's redemptive program in the world. And so, now we see in verse 6, how does Abram respond when God gives him this promise and gives him this sign. This is really the the apex of this first section. Abram has heard the word of promise. He's looked into the starry sky, and now verse six is his response. It says in just a few short words, and he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him as righteousness. So, Abram believed the, the Lord and his word, right? He he trusted, he affirmed, he, he considered that the Lord was faithful and able and reliable to do what he said he would do. And notice what comes next. When Abram believes the Lord, the Lord counts it or reckons that belief to him as righteousness. And that's different than Abram earning righteousness, right? Righteousness refers to right behavior in line with God's will and God's law. And so when, when God reckons Abram righteous by faith, It means that he's counting that faith as righteousness for Abram. So, what's going on here? When we think about the New Testament, this this verse becomes very important, especially for the Apostle Paul. And so, uh, I'll, I'll turn to Romans 4 real quick and read for you just a few verses from Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writing says this, "'What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh?' For if Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Our text, Genesis 15, 6. Now, Paul says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly... His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes David in in Psalm 32. And so we see here, Paul's point is that being justified, being declared righteous in God's sight, can only come to ungodly sinners through faith. Righteousness can only come as a gift when it's counted or reckoned to us through faith. This is a, an entirely different principle than law-keeping, right? For the one who, who does, he'll be judged according to his obedience to the law. But to the one who, who believes that God can justify even the ungodly, that faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. And because of our sin, because of our inability to keep God's law, we need some other way of acceptance with God apart from law-keeping, Right? Even if from this point forward, I kept the law perfectly for the rest of my life, I would still stand under God's just judgment for the 31 years I've lived so far, right? And so Paul wants us to know just as Abraham was reckoned righteous, and and Paul makes a big deal in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4 of the fact that he was reckoned righteous before he was circumcised. uh, Paul wants us to know God will credit to believers even now in 2021 with a righteousness that is not their own through faith in Jesus Christ. Turning to the end of the chapter in chapter uh, 4 of Romans, starting in verse 23, Paul says, but the words it was counted to him, so from Genesis 15:6, were not written for his sake alone. So, those words were not just for Abram's sake. But, verse 24, for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. When we believe in the gospel, when we believe God's gracious offer of salvation and forgiveness in and through Christ, God counts us righteous in his sight. He reckons us as righteous on the basis of Christ, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection and his glorious exaltation. Though Abram only grasped God's plan in in a shadowy kind of seed form way back in Genesis 12, he clung to God's word, and he was reckoned righteous based on that faith. And praise God, we have a fuller grasp of what God meant to accomplish through this seed of Abraham, this, this one who would come and crush the head of the woman, or the head of the serpent. And this is our Lord Jesus, the one who has dealt with our sin and who provides us with a righteousness that we could never bring about by keeping God's law. And so, turning back to the, the text of Genesis, that takes us through the, the first part, verses 1 through 6, but now we're going to move more quickly through, through the, the latter half of Genesis 15, and we'll look secondly at a smoky symbol, verses 7 through 21. And so, we're going to look at this kind of weird ceremony that takes place in the second half of Genesis 15. So, look at verses 7 through 11. We'll look at the preparations for the covenant ceremony Verse seven, "'And he said to him, "'I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans "'to give you this land to possess.' But he, Abram, said, "'O Lord God, how am I to know "'that I shall possess it?' He said to him, "'Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all "'these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half.' And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And so, these verses kind of help to set the stage for what's going to take place at the end of the chapter, right? They, they help to put some of the pieces in place, no pun intended. Um, and so, for instance, in verse 7, God announces to Abram that he's the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. Does that language sound familiar to anyone? We think about... Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, right? When God announces to Israel the Ten Commandments, he begins in chapter 20 with the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's Genesis or Exodus 20 verse 2. And so just as God in the Exodus reminded his people of his deliverance and that formed the basis of their relationship in which he gave to them this covenant at Mount Sinai, so here, The Lord reminds Abram that he brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He elected him and saved him, and now he's here to make a covenant with Abram. But in verse 8, we see, once again, Abram responds, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, we see Abram's faith is, he was just counted righteous because of his faith, and now he's, he's faltering and doubting once again, right? He needs his faith to be strengthened, to be upheld. He asks for some assurance, something to confirm his faith. We think about, you know, a sailboat, maybe that's that's at a standstill on the water, waiting for a fresh gust of wind to, to blow it along and, and keep it moving along the water. Abram is in need of something to, to give wind in his sails. And it's interesting, we just read this glorious statement in verse 6. And whenever Abram speaks in chapter 15, his words appear kind of tinged with doubt, but whenever he acts, like in verse 6, when he believes God's promise, or here in verses 10 through 12, when he, he goes and does what the Lord requires, Abraham's actions demonstrate faith, and so there's this interesting kind of contrast where his words seem to suggest some doubt, but his, his actions demonstrate the genuineness of his faith, and I think this is helpful for us, right? Right? Even when doubt and fear creeps into our lives, we can still put one foot forward in front of the other, right? We can still move forward in obedience, even in the midst of, of doubts, even in the midst of circumstances that seem contrary to what we know about God and his promises. So God's response in verse 9, it's, it's interesting. He instructs Abram to, to bring several animals, a heifer, a female goat, a ram. These animals are animals that are later on talked about within the sacrificial system, right? And so, Abram is appearing here as as kind of a priest, right? And what's interesting is that God commands these animals to be brought, verse 9, but then Abram cuts them in half and sets the pieces over against each other, right? God didn't tell him to do that. He just said, bring the animals. And so, I, I think we see here, Abram already clearly understood what was being commanded when God said to bring these animals, So, there's there's some background here about covenants that is just part of the context of this ancient world. And so, when God says to bring these animals, Abram already knows what God is asking to be done. So, we see in verses 12 through 16 next that God predicts what's going to happen to Abram's descendants. And so, starting in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And so in verse 12, the sun goes down, Abram falls into this deep, dreadful sleep. It's interesting, the last time this word is used in Genesis, it's for God causing a deep sleep to fall on Adam in Genesis chapter 2. And then God creates a, a woman out of his side for him, right? And so we see some connection here between the covenant with Abram and, and Adam in Genesis 2. It's interesting though, because in verses 1 through 6, we already saw Abram go outside and look at the stars, right? And so there might be a question in your mind, okay, why is the sun now going down? I think one potential explanation is that 1 through 6 was one night, and then 7 through 21 is, is kind of taking place on the next evening. I think that's a, a good explanation. But however we, we think about these two events and how they relate, God predicts here, or better yet, announces to Abram what's going to happen to his descendants after his death. The point being emphasized here is, is the certainty of these events and also the, their compatibility with God's promises to Abram. So God is announcing hundreds of years in advance what's going to happen. And so this, this is certain because it's coming from God Almighty. And also God is announcing this to say, this is not contrary to my purposes. This is not going to thwart my promises. In other words, I am sovereignly orchestrating events in your life and in the lives of your descendants, they will be slaves in Egypt, they will be afflicted 400 years, but then I will deliver them in the Exodus and I will bring them out with great possessions. So this is not a a prediction the way that I might predict what the weather will be like tomorrow, right? This isn't even a prediction the way that a weatherman would predict the weather tomorrow, right? This is an absolute guarantee, this is an utter certainty coming from Almighty God, So while while this might sound discouraging on the face of it, it's meant to be an encouragement to Abram. It's meant to be an encouragement to Abram's descendants who are in the wilderness hearing this book of Moses. It's meant to be an encouragement to us today. God is the the sovereign Lord of history. His purposes will stand. He will accomplish all that he intends, even in spite of, of the failings of his people, even in spite of the opposition of his enemies. Even Satan cannot thwart his plans. And that's a key theme throughout Genesis, that God is, is utterly committed to his purposes, even in spite of failure and opposition. Right? When you read the book of Genesis, you walk away with this idea that God is going to be faithful to his plan for creation, even if all of humanity messes it up. Right? We can just look at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we can think... God is going to have to accomplish his purposes in spite of his people, not because of them. And God concludes this section in verse 15. This will all take place a long time from now. After you're gone, you're going to be buried in a good old age. And moreover, after these 400 years of slavery, he's going to rescue his people. And it's also going to coincide with the iniquity of the Amorites reaching its full completion. And so God's sovereignty, his election of his people those are are totally consistent with His justice and with His righteous judgment on the nations of the land. And so we see how God is perfectly consistent with Himself. All of His attributes perfectly cohere. But finally, we want to look at this last part of the text, verses 17 through 21. We're going to see the actual inauguration of this covenant ceremony. We're going to see this cutting of the covenant between God and Abram. And there's an emphasis here on the promised land, So verse 17, we read, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right, so starting in verse 17, we see a very odd scene being described, right? We see this the sun goes down, there's this smoking fire pot, this flaming torch, and they pass between the halves of these animals that have been split open. So what in the world is going on here, right? What's being symbolized by this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch? We already noticed some connections to Exodus earlier in Genesis 15. Now we see again further pointers to the Exodus, right? The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, they seem to symbolize God's presence when we read through the book of Exodus. Think about the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, Exodus 13 verse 21. As God leads his people through the wilderness, right? Fire and cloud and smoke are associated with God's consuming presence in Exodus 13 Moreover, when they reach Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, we read this in Exodus 19, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So imagine yourself as the Israelites, the first ones to to read the book of Moses, probably on the cusp of the promised land. And when they read Genesis 15, they would have no problem connecting the, the smoking fire pot, the flaming torch. They would say, oh, that, that's a symbol of God's presence. That's, that's God himself. So God himself is, is passing through the pieces. In verse 18, it makes it crystal clear that this, this odd ceremony is officially inaugurating or cutting the covenant between God and Abram. But what's being communicated as God symbolically passes through the pieces of these dead animals? The text itself doesn't say, right? It just describes the events that happen. And so, if we're to interpret it correctly, we have to, to provide the meaning. We have to think about, okay, what, what's actually going on here? And we know, not only from historical sources, but also from later scripture, what's implied here. And in the, in the ancient world, when two parties would enter into a covenant, they would often split the animals in half and both parties of this agreement would walk through the the, uh, the the halves of the animals and this would be to to signal to all the witnesses to everyone present if i don't uphold the obligations of this covenant let what happened to these animals happen to me and so the point is got you know it could be covenants between people between you know people just doing business in the ancient world and they would say let the curses of the covenant fall on me if I don't fulfill my obligations. And so that's essentially what God is doing here. We could call this an oath of malediction, which is just a fancy way of saying the person is calling for a maledictory oath, a curse to lay on their head if they fail to fulfill the terms. Jeremiah 34 provides biblical support for interpreting Genesis 15 this way. Jeremiah in chapter 34, he describes a situation in the days of King Zedekiah when the leaders and the people of Israel had, had made this covenant and it was a covenant to actually release some slaves and then they had, they had reneged and gone back on that agreement. And so in chapter 34, God says this in verses 18 and 19, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And So you hear there, the people failed to uphold the covenant. And so God is saying, I'm going to, to make them like these pieces that they've passed between. And so notice what's happening here in Genesis 15. God, symbolically, as the the fire pot and the torch is, is the only party of the covenant who passes through these pieces, right? Abraham can't pass through. He's in a deep and dreadful sleep, right? He's, he's witnessing all this in a vision. And so God is, in essence, saying to Abram and to his descendants, my commitment to my promises to you is so certain that I call down a curse on myself if I don't complete my side of the agreement. This covenant is is in one sense unconditional, it's unilateral. I'm going to see it through, and no amount of human failure is going to stop me from fulfilling my promises to you. God is making an unconditional commitment, even in spite of Abram's sin, even in spite of the rebellion of the sins of Abraham's descendants after him. And when we look at the entirety of scripture, we see that God ultimately fulfills his covenant promises to his people in Christ, and he does so by taking upon himself the curses that we deserve for our sin. For us to, to be saved and to be counted righteous, like Genesis 15:6 describes, we need God to act, which he is utterly committed to do, as Genesis 15 says, But we also need a substitute, one who would take away our guilt and our condemnation. And so we have a, a tension here, right? There's a tension between God's. Unswerving commitment to save and yet we need someone to, to represent us and to take away our, our real guilt and sin. And so God's solution to this tension is to, to receive the curses himself and he does that in the person of Jesus Christ. You don't need to turn there but listen to, to the words of Galatians chapter 3 starting in verse 13 Paul says this Christ redeemed us just like God redeemed Israel in the Exodus, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So remember back in Genesis 12, if, if Abraham's offspring, God is going to bring blessing to all nations through Abraham, then we need Jesus to come to, to take our curse in our place so that in Christ Jesus, we might receive the blessings of Abraham. That's Paul's argument here in Galatians 3. And so, the curse for breaking the covenant, whether it's Adam and Eve disobeying God in the garden and deserving death, whether it's the, the curses pronounced over Israel in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 for breaking the old covenant, whether it's the curse that's pronounced over all of us who fail to love God and love our neighbor as we should, God has willingly laid this curse, our curse, on Jesus. And so we have hope. God is utterly committed to his purposes in and through Christ. And so as we've seen in Genesis 15, despite appearances to the contrary, despite things in our experience that might tempt us to doubt God and his word, God is utterly committed to fulfilling his covenant promises to his people. We see that in Genesis 15. We see that most clearly in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we've looked at Genesis in two parts, a starry sky and a smoking symbol. But now I want to close here with this. What are some of the circumstances in your life that seem to cast doubt on God's word of promise to you? In what ways are you tempted to believe that God is for you in Christ? Perhaps you notice remaining sin in your life and you're tempted to to doubt your salvation. Maybe you you look around and you say, I know God has has promised that the the work he's begun, he's going to bring to completion, but I keep struggling and failing in the same sins. And no doubt we should examine ourselves. But maybe the, the suffering of this present evil age, the hardships, the anxieties of life, have clouded your vision, so you you can no longer see God and his promises. They seem far off and remote, and your circumstances, your suffering is weighing you down. It could be that you simply struggle to believe in the Bible, that it's true, that it's authoritative, and that it accurately conveys God's promise to you. But whatever the case, Genesis 15 reminds us that despite appearances, God is at work, and he's utterly committed to fulfilling his covenant promises to his people. And as we've seen, the good news of Jesus' death, his resurrection, that's the clearest and ultimate example of God's utter commitment to his promises. And so, if you're tempted to ask like Abram, oh Lord, what will you give me? Sometimes we're, we're tempted to, to ask, oh, how am I to know that these things will be? We don't have to look up anymore at the stars and number them, right? We can look at the stars and we can think about the amazing promise that God gave to Abram. But that's not the sign that God has given us, right? We're to look now with eyes of faith on the Son of God, stricken, dead, buried, and raised as a ransom for many. And we're also now to look under the new covenant to the signs that God has given us. What does Jesus say when he inaugurates the new covenant in his blood, right? He gives us the symbols of bread and wine, and he says, this is my body. This is my blood. And so, just as Abraham looked at the stars, we can, as surely as you can touch the bread, as surely as you can taste the, the cup on your lips, so surely has, has God poured out his wrath on his perfect, obedient son. So let those be tokens to you that God has, has given you to assure your hearts and to trust that God is fulfilling His promises to us ultimately in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word of promise that in Christ You are fulfilling all Your promises and that in Him all of them are yes and amen. We thank You that in this text we see Your utter commitment to save Your people, Your commitment to fulfill all of Your promises, to undo what Adam and Eve had brought into the world through their sin and to undo it through Abram and through his offspring. And we thank you for how that promise is progressively worked out in the rest of scripture through the nation of Israel and and the promises you made to, to King David and how ultimately your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, brings all of those promises to fulfillment. And yet as true man, Our Lord Jesus was able to to stand in our place and truly represent us. And he was able to to take our curse on himself so that we who are unrighteous, who have not kept the law, can be counted and reckoned righteous through our union with Christ. And so we pray that you would give us hope, that you would give us faith and trust in your promises, and that you would allow us to, to walk in faith as our father Abraham has done. In Jesus' name, amen.